We are live. Ladies and gentlemen, what's happening? My name's Austin with Block Bites, and welcome to Across the Chains. And we have got one hell of a show for you today. So the SEC is absolutely on the warpath right now. Banks are dropping like flies. Powell and Yellen are trying to position like everything's perfectly fine and the entire world is on fire right behind them. We can all see it. We've got one hell of a panel and Suvlaki is gracing us with his presence once again. Mikey, take us into the show, buddy. Gentlemen, hello, 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 and welcome to the show, Mark, Sivlaki, Nick, Double Sharp. How's hello. everyone? Hello, everyone. Morning. Pretty good. Sivlaki, so, I've known you for quite some time, and I think this is the first time, it's certainly the first time I've interacted with you on video. It might be the first time I've I've heard your voice or spoken to you, man. And, and uh, something about you, I don't know what it was, you know, Clay, Clay was saying it's the Sivlaki effect. We got like 30,000 views or something on the last episode because you came and I think it might be your beard man your beard is like manhood you know right it's like on your face right there dude that's what it is so I'm glad I'm glad you're back buddy he's like the um, Chad meme personified right is it I see you're probably hiding like a really like defined chin underneath there Nick how's the uh have you become a mortician yet with all the all the body bags you're carrying around I mean stacking bodies man Stacking. stacking bodies stacking. about to get messy and uh and mark over there in uh we're gonna we're gonna change it from the west to the left we're just gonna call it the left side oh of the my country, god don't do that how's problem. how's california treating you besides having beautiful weather uh well pretty good i mean the weather is back to being beautiful now um and i just was at nftla uh last couple days and i met bebus in real life so that dude is tall like you have no it like the tall He's huge. not come across on the on the podcast but yeah he is like like we're talking like crazy tall right so yeah, yeah. good to meet the fella. guy good good guy good guy He's a great guy He's giant hands I don't know maybe that was an giant optical hands. illusion in the picture <laughs> no, but no, the no, dude right. has I wasn't like making a weird joke about him either I looked at him like holy shit his fingers are so long double sharp I hear you guys are getting like record amounts of snow in Tahoe Yeah and that's what I was going to say like it's I'm in the same state uh, we just have had nonstop weather since December, uh, but actually it, it's t toned down a little bit. Now we're just getting like a few inches of snow per day instead of feet, uh, which <laughs> I love the snow, but I'm also tired of shoveling. So it's nice to have. A I don't blame you. Break. You guys are going to be having your Fourth of July barbecue with a with a, a flurry outside. Yep. All the, the ski resorts are staying open through the Fourth of July. There's so much is... snow. There's just something really, really weird about that. All right, so let's get into it. So Wednesday was a very, very anticipated day uh, around the financial markets because just like every other rate decision we've gotten for the last year, it was the most important FOMC rate decision that we were ever going to have until the next one, right? I mean, there were Twitter spaces going on. Everyone was an expert. You know, I, I'm just here like trying to compile information. I'm basically a talking head. Like if, if, if you want to put, you want to define me, I'm basically a talking head that tries to, tries to bring information. Right. And so the FOMC, we got, we got a 25 basis point rate hike. Uh, and we got Powell up there twitching. Like he took a hit of meth, uh, before, before the speech. And then he's going, Hey, the banks are fine. The banks are fine. The banks are fine. 
And then you've got Yellen giving a speech at the same time saying, oh, well, you know what? I don't know that we are going to backstop all deposits in the United States. And then something really interesting uh, is happening right now. And the market doesn't seem to believe. So, so this isn't really the interesting part. So we have an 87.2% chance on the CME futures or the FedWatch tool here saying that, that that's it. We're not going to get any more rate raises. Um, 12.8% saying we're going to get another uh, 25 basis points. However, as soon as we go to June, we start getting people pricing in cuts, which is interesting uh, because nothing about what he said mentioned cuts. And, you know, if my feeling is, and I want you guys to please correct me if you feel I'm wrong. My feeling is if they're, you know, if anything was going to break, they already broke it. Right. So they raised another quarter, you know, quarter of a point or, 50 basis points. Like I doubt they're going to break it any further than it's already broken. And I'm really interested to know, all right, where are you guys on this? Where are we now? Like, where are we now? Are we in the midst of the world burning or are we in the midst of, I don't know, is it going to get better? Are they telling us the truth? Let's kick it over to you, Mark. Yeah, I'm kind of with Balaji on all this, and I've I've done a lot of listening to Balaji mostly this past week and people analyzing Balaji. And Balaji basically says the banks are all insolvent right now, today. And, um, you know, this is what we've seen right now in terms of the banks collapsing are just the first of a wave of banks and eventually the currency collapsing. And uh, while I, I don't know whether Bitcoin will go to a, a million in, in 90 days um, or whether his timeline is correct, I think he's directionally correct. And I do think that, um, you know, <laughs> He, he presents his case with graphs and evidence, right? So I do believe that the banks right now are insolvent. And I believe that Yellen is just propping up the, you know, all of them, basically, in one way or another. So, um, so yeah, I, I think the world's on fire. So I, I made a boo-boo, as I do, on basically every show. And I forgot to mention, we have a giveaway today. Uh, and it was generously provided by Mr. Nick Dracon and Ravello Intel so we're going to be giving away, well, Nick, uh, let, would you explain what we're giving away here? <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, so Revelo Intel is a research platform. Um, it's a paid service. So what we're going to give away is three 15-day accounts, um, all access passes. Two of them will be raffled. All you need to do is hashtag Revelo in the chat, and we'll pick two random people out. Austin has some cool tech to do that. And the third one um we'll give out to the best comment in the chat it could be funny it could be insightful it could be informative it could just be making fun of Suvlaki's beard um i'm just gonna pick one so yeah have at it let's go let's go let's go jared good to see you in the chat buddy welcome to the show man uh you guys are kind of a topic today we're gonna get into some F sec shenanigans so glad you're here buddy Suvlaki. Over to you, buddy. What do you what do you think's actually going on? Uh, because you have you have a well defined history, uh, I would say. You come from a place of knowledge. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Thank you for the kind words. I think. Look, the beard game strong tonight, so half my half my job is done. <laughs> but um, I think right now we are seeing probably the most intense and global game of chess. I think there are many, many pieces in play that we don't all have access to. I, based on the information that we can see, like I, it's hard to tell how they can stop cutting rates. 
in the second half of the year. Like the, there's two massive battles going on, right? There's insolvent banks um, and there's also inflation. And historically, increasing the rates is a very effective tool to keep inflation under control because it makes borrowing more, ex more expensive. And as soon as borrowing is more expensive, people spend less bringing inflation down, right? So everything Balaji has put out there is true, right? There's, there's, there's no denying that. I just wonder about the completeness of the information he's putting out there. Because especially when he talks about, you know, the banks are insolvent. I think just for the benefit of the audience, it's always important to remember there are two types of insolvency, right? There's uh, insolvency when your assets, uh, when your liabilities exceed your assets. And there's insolvency when you can't meet your liabilities when they fall due. So <clears throat> the one is duration mismatch, which is the cash flow issue. And what is effectively happened to Silvergate Bank and Silicon Valley? Right now, how many businesses do you think out there in the current e in economy are not cash flow insolvent? How many can meet their, their, their current debt when they fall due? It's not a it's not this new thing that just suddenly popped out in the business environment. Businesses have been been leveraging their debt position for years. Right? It's it's not a new concept, and. You know, we talk about factual insolvency in this, but there's always two things to keep in mind, especially with the, because a lot of attention comes to like these available for sale and how to maturity investments that the banks have. Always important to remember there are two things to consider when you're doing those things. There's the trading price of those assets on the open market and how much they can actually be redeemed for. And the only difference is time. Right? It's the same thing that we had when we're talking about UST, whether it can maintain its peg or not. It was never a case of USTC being um, losing its peg because it didn't have the backing. It was always the speculation that caused that instance. And it's this on a much broader scale. And the focus on how to maturity assets and available for sale assets, at no point in any of that information is there any insights into the other side of the balance sheet? What either economic or natural hedges do they have for this on their balance sheet? So if you think on one side, they have treasury T-bills. On the other side, they have loans to customers. If they both fixed rate, if you're taking a loss on the one side, surely you're taking a gain on the other, right? So there are natural hedges in place, but like that information isn't out there. And we're at this period where, you know, you look on social media and everyone is almost a technical accounting expert, but like there's a lot, it's a very complicated, like technical accounting is very complex and very specialist and you need to see the full picture and we don't have that yet. So it's kind of interesting because now everyone is just speculating on what it could be and what it can do, but you know, like the rate hikes are important for managing inflation. So a question for you, Suvlaki, before we kick it over to Nick. So we've got the bank term funding program, which, you know, if they're holding uh, these certain types of securities, you know, mainly U.S. treasuries that are, we'll call them underwater for lack of a better term, and they can't meet their obligations to their customers, right? They can use these as collateral, essentially get a par value loan from the government to, to backstop. 
now we've got them opening up the swap window, uh, which is now I don't particularly understand it, but my my rudimentary understanding of that is it's almost them it's them helping international banks to meet their U.S. dollar obligations, um, where they seem to where this you know they obviously can't go bail out let's say international banks as the Federal Reserve, but they can help them to meet their U.S. dollar obligations, which sounds to me like. And Balaji, again, he, he presented some very good evidence to say this, is that the insolvency runs deep. Uh, there's there's very, very deep cracks in this. And there was a, a graph. I, I should have had that pulled up before the show. I'll have it pulled up later uh, that I, I retweeted last night, which which essentially showed some really, really crazy shit uh, that's going on from the Fed. Can, can you speak on that at all before we kick over to Nick? Well, I think I think when we consider what is the objective of all of this and what we don't have insight into is what is the Fed's priority here, right? Can they backstop these underwater loans or is battling the fight against inflation more important? And I think the fallout for maybe, it looks like they deem the fallout of getting into a hyperinflationary cycle is far more damaging than doing this backstop because they aren't, they don't necessarily have to just print money to backstop these loans, right? And the backstop isn't necessarily giving collateral for the full notional of the the T bills, right? It could only be for a portion. Like that, that's the part of information that we don't know. And the Fed is charging interest on it. Right. So it's not like it's do it's 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 a clever way of assisting the international counterparties in a way that, you know, this, we saw recently currencies went under, we saw Deutsche Bank went under, uh, is well, not gone under, but it's walking the tightrope, right? If you now have these scenarios with this puts significant strain on other international banks, HSBC, Barclays, Standard Charter, you know, what is the indirect impact on the US counterparts do right. So what I mean is when they're doing international trade, JP Morgan, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, who do you think the counterparties are to trades? And what do you think happens if through reckless um, liquidity management, someone like HSBC goes under, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it does feedback to the US market in an indirect manner. And I think that's what they're trying to manage. And the backstop doesn't just mean they're going to print more. It just means that they're making a facility available that the central banks can access. It's not at no point are they loaning money to the local regional banks. They're not giving a loan to HSBC or they're not giving a loan to Santander or, you know, mm-hmm. Pedro's local uh community bank they are giving banks to the to the ecb or the bank of uh, the bank of japan the bank of canada you know so they the counterparty risk is isolated and they trying to manage whatever is happening um i mentioned early in the week when i was speaking to nick that we are looking at these pieces in isolation, whether it's hyperinflation, whether it's the rates, whether it's other things, where the Fed has to manage it holistically. And that's why I opened with, you know, we, we're seeing the biggest game of chess play out 
and we can only see the information once we get towards the end of the game. Now we just see, oh, why, is that, why have they moved that chase piece like that? And that's, that's the purpose of this discussion, and it's very interesting. Can I ask a question of Suvlaki? So I read earlier this week, just to quantify all this, that the uh, amount of U.S. assistance, call it you know printing or not, was two trillion, right? For the for the domestic banks, the amount of assistance for the overseas banks was four trillion. Is that are those numbers right? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me, and it doesn't surprise me because of the importance of USD in the global funding market, right? So 85% of all forex trades are facing USD, 50% of all international payments are settled in USD. And then, well, what does that mean? So the forex market is a $3 trillion market on almost daily volume. So four trillion actually isn't that much, right. and they do need it. Um, yeah. So yeah, look, Austin, I know that I've um, I've gone on in a bit of a ramble, but uh, I hope that answers your questions. That's okay. Actually, I, I want you know when you speak, you have a very soothing. I don't know, you have a very soothing, inquisitive tone about you. <laughs> so you seem very, you seem like a very rational human being, which is you know it's rare, I, and at least in my sphere, it's very rare. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> I want to. Uh, I want to share this chart as we kick it over to you, Nick. And I don't, I don't even want to pretend that I understand this, but it is the liquidity and credit facilities loans primary credit level on Wednesday. But what did stand out to me is you see the spike in 2008. We all know what happened then, the GFC. You see the spike in 2020, and then it's hard to see. But you have to look all the way up here at this number spiking way the hell up here, which has outpaced both of the other spikes that we saw. Now, again, I don't even want to claim that I understand what this is, uh, but do you have any insight into what I'm looking at here? Um, <clears throat> yeah, sure. So the first thing that you need to understand is this chart shows absolute numbers, right? So the economy and the banking sector and international trade is much larger today than it was in 2008. So if the facility was X 15 years ago, you would expect it to be 2, 3x today. So it does look alarming, but it's important to understand the numbers that you're looking at. Um, a lot to unpack, though. Um, you asked, where are we now? Um, is Biology right? Are the banks insolvent? Um, all good questions. Let's start with, are banks insolvent? <clears throat> so like you touched on this, right? Um, you can be... On paper, insolvent. Most people are, most businesses are. But practically, if you can open another line of credit, then you're fine and you'll live to fight another day. So let's break down, you know, what's been going on with these bank failures. It's duration mismatch. There is no hole in the balance sheet in terms of bad credit, right? Some of them have lost a little bit of money because they had to dump their treasuries at a loss. Mm -hmm. The backstops are there to prevent that, right? So that more banks don't have to fold. Now, the difference between printing money to cover losses and printing money, whatever verbiage you want to use, but creating credit as a temporary bridge loan to give you enough time for your assets to mature is a different ballgame. So sure, Balaji's right. Banks are insolvent. But if they're insolvent now, they've always been insolvent. 
right? Mm -hmm. Fractional reserve banking means that they, you know, technically at any given time, depending on a snapshot of the balance sheet, you could claim that a bank is insolvent. But it doesn't matter. All that matters is practically what are the outcomes that follow? Um, and the Fed has just shown us that one of the outcomes that is probably not going to follow is businesses and depositors losing money. They're not going to allow it. They're going to try, they're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that individual people and businesses are not going to lose a dime. If the banks fail, the banks fail. The equity gets wiped out. The bondholders take a haircut and, um, and life goes on. So that's very important when we're discussing, you know, what's actually happening. Bank failures. Okay. But the, the, the vibrations through to the real economy right now, from what we've seen, they've fixed it, right? They've fixed it. Now, in terms of where that money came from, I don't know. Are they printing money? I don't know, right? But it kind of doesn't matter because the the collateral that is being used is U.S. Treasuries, right? Mm -hmm. We can talk about the fall of the dollar and the U.S. government's corrupt and all these other crap. Great. They're U.S. Treasuries. Every day, some of these U.S. Treasuries reach maturity. They get their principal back. They pay down their loan. Austin, so like you and I made a video um, specifically on swap lines explaining what they were. And you're right. It is the Fed providing a facility to help international banks meet their US dollar funding requirements for one reason and one reason only. So they don't have to dump their US treasuries on the market, which would be an absolute disaster. That would mm -hmm. absolutely crush the dollar and cause global chaos. So that's why the numbers look big, four trillion, six trillion, whatever the number happens. It's probably going to get larger and larger. Um, and, and the mechanism by which they use is they're not actually lending money to the foreign banks. The Fed, using US dollars, is buying foreign currency from the foreign central banks, keeping it on deposit and giving them the US dollars. The foreign central banks then take those US dollars and provide a loan to the banks under their jurisdiction <clears throat> using their US treasuries as collateral. So mm -hmm. it's the same thing that the Fed has done for the US banks, except with an extra step where there's this foreign mm -hmm. exchange swap and the terms of these swap deals by the way they were used in 2010 they're not new they're used all the time is that the fed can unwind those positions at the same exchange rate that the position was initiated so the fed has no risk really mm -hmm. their counterparty is the foreign central bank right they're not even exposed to to the the foreign banking sector so anyway we're kind of getting on topic with a lot with a lot to unpack so yeah Technically insolvent, practically looks like they're going to be fine. Are some banks going to fail? Are that some banks going to have to get um, uh, uh, taken over? Are equity holders going to get body bagged? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to keep happening. You've got the news with Credit Suisse last week. Deutsche Bank's been the walking dead for a decade. Um, I kind of think they're going to find a way to save it because they always do. Um, but whether it hangs around or it doesn't, such is life. Right. As long as businesses don't lose their money, um, the economy kicks on. What what will happen as these banks, you know, start to face some turmoil, even if businesses and people don't lose their money, credit markets freeze up. Right. It's going to be increasingly. And, and these things don't happen on a linear kind of scale. It's 
you know, <laughs> it's a hockey stick in terms of how difficult it's going to be to get a loan. So that in itself is extremely deflationary and puts the brakes on any economy, right? Um, and other things break because of that, because now you start to look at corporate bankruptcies. Because if you're a corporation and you've over-levered your balance sheet in any industry, and now you can't go refinance whatever you're doing, and, and your bonds can't get rolled over, you're fucked. So that's going to happen a lot to some listed companies as well. Commercial real estate is of grave concern because it's such a highly levered um, industry. And a lot of these loans, I, I, I read somewhere, I've got to find the article, but I think it's $3 trillion worth of commercial real estate um, uh, loans uh, come up for refinancing in the next 12 months. Who's mm -hmm. going to refinance that? And at what terms? So then what happens to that, that inventory? Um, so there's a lot of things that that have broken and a lot more things that are going to break. Um, but me and you losing our money in the bank, I don't think is going to be one of them. Um, your initial question, Austin, was where are we? Zoom out, right? We've been saying, well, I've been saying the same thing on this show for the better part of nine months, is that interest rates need to go up because inflation is out of control. Um, Jerome Powell has egg on his face. He looks like an absolute idiot for his inflation is transitory posture. Um, again, contrary to popular opinion, he's not a silly man. Um, he's a human. He's proud. He doesn't want an egg on his face again. Let me just read you three quotes, right? So where are we in the cycle is that <clears throat> inflation is still persistently high. It is coming down, but not fast enough. The Fed needs to get inflation out of under control and everything else comes secondary. So at the end of the day, we will bring inflation down to 2%. This is what he said the other day. No one should doubt that. Now, that's pretty strong verbiage from someone that just got made a fool of um, on the same topic that he was made a fool about. Number two, we have to bring inflation down to 2%. There is a real cost to bringing inflation down to 2%, but the cost of failing is much higher. You can read our history, as I'm sure you have. I mean... You don't need to guess. You don't need to look at charts. You just need to read what he said. The third quote, in response to the question of whether further rate hikes, further rate hikes, hikes are off the table because of what's happening in the economy and in the banking sector. No, absolutely not. If we need to raise rates higher, we absolutely will. We will eventually get to tight enough policy to get inflation down to 2%. So if you're trying to guess what happens next, and if you're looking to consensus, you know, what consensus thinks interest rates are going to do over the next 30 or 90 days or 60 days, um, all of that is wrong, okay? They're not cutting rates. I've been telling you guys all year and at the end of last year, not going to happen because it's very, very obvious what they're focusing on. You don't need to read between the lines. Just listen to what the hell he's saying when all the guns are pointed at him. Banks are failing. They have. Three banks shut down, right? They're backstopping the, 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 the international banking sector with US funding, right? Mark's right. The world's on fire. And he just said that. So you have to take him at his word, right? You just have to. Rates are not coming down and they will keep going up because there's nothing else they can do. And that is why the world's on fire, because you're in a situation where the bond market's telling you um, that 
uh, uh, rates need to get cut at some point in the future. But before we get there, these guys need to get inflation out of control. The economy is going to be on fire. There'll be corporate bankruptcies. It's going to be a freaking bloodbath. If you're long equities right now, I don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, whatever bump we just got because of the, you know, the, the, the banking calamity and maybe they printed money, maybe they didn't, that little bump that we all got, um, that's not going to last. Bitcoin is the interesting one. I, I really don't know what's going to happen with Bitcoin. I'm very certain what's going to happen with equities and with the bond market. But, you know, if the world's on fire and all these things are happening, Bitcoin becomes a play, doesn't it? So I don't know if that if that goes to hell with everything else over the next three to six months. Um, it 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 might decouple. This might be it. I don't know, right? I you know you know me. I'm not an ideologue. I, I look at the information. I look at the price action, and I try to work out what's going to happen. And Bitcoin's holding up pretty well. So anyway, I'll pause there. Well, uh, uh, Emmett, we need to just cut that whole thing and put it on its own video to, to re-release later, man. That was absolutely incredible. Thank you, Nick. So I just wanted to share this real quick and, and Double Sharp, don't be afraid to jump in here, bud. So this is the dot plot they just released uh, the other day. And, and to Nick's point, every single FOMC participant at the, at the very least prices in exactly where we are. Most of them are pricing in further rate raises uh, through the end of 2023. And so the market and the Fed are completely on two different planets uh, when it comes to that. One interesting thing that, that was, you know, kind of coming to mind as you were as you were talking, Nick, and, you know, so we're in this environment where there's a rock and a hard place, right? They can't say the banks are insolvent, obviously, uh, and go get your money out, move it to JP Morgan or Bank of America or whatever. But we're also in a place where if anyone even sniffs insolvency, you walk by and they smell it, right? That's it. There's people are going to start yanking. Um, have they been backstopped sufficiently to the point to where that's okay? Like that's not a problem. Do you know? Is that I, a question anyone could answer? I, I, I think the framing needs to be, you know, what constitutes a failure. Okay. If depositors don't lose any money and businesses mm -hmm. can continue their operations, but the equity and the bond and the equity holders and the bond holders get wiped out. That's life. That's how things should operate. The fact that over the last 15 years, it wasn't allowed to happen is bad. Some of that stuff needs to be sucked out of the economy. So, you know, in terms of are they backstop sufficiently in terms of everyone getting their money back? I think they're not going to let one U.S. depositor lose a cent. I, I really think so. Um, because if they protected these three banks, if they protected the depositors of these three banks that by all accounts they were gunning for because of their affiliation with crypto, um, then they're certainly not going to let Omaha State Regional Bank, you know, they're not going to let those farmers cop it. So, um, but if you're investing, if you're, if you're dumpster, dumpster diving for regional bank equity right now, that's a dangerous game. That is a very mm -hmm. dangerous game. You know, and when you look at the equity market, you can look at the S&P 500, but look at an ETF uh, with the ticker IWM. It's the Russell 2000, right? That is down in a straight line. It's at, it's at cycle lows right now. The S&P is not at cycle lows. But once you look at, because there's some very good companies that are in the S&P 500, but once you zoom out and you say, well, let me see the top 2,000 companies, it's a freaking shit show. It's a train mm -hmm. wreck. 
Um, so, yeah, I, I think the framing needs to be needs to be on point in terms of what outcomes do we expect to happen and what constitutes a backstop. Um, equity holders run for the hills, but I think everyone else is going to be okay. Run for the hills. All right, double sharp. You want to jump in here at all with this before we before we kick over? No, he's in. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's. I want to. I want to go to uh, the next topic, which I would consider to be a very very important one, and that is the rampage. And, and we're going to continue to talk about this on this show. So just be ready for it. Uh, the SEC has absolutely been on an anti crypto or what seems to be an anti crypto rampage. And I heard an alternate view on that this morning that I'll share with you guys. But uh, recently, Coinbase uh, was issued a Wells notice, which a Wells notice, for anyone that doesn't know, is essentially a notice uh, of enforcement intent, essentially. Like we, we've done some research, we, we are going to bring enforcement action against you. Here is your notice that that's going to happen. Uh, they were not provided with many specifics. And Coinbase is a really interesting case in that, you know, prior to them going to IPO, because they are a publicly traded company, they had to be reviewed by the SEC. And many, many things within this supposed, you know, Wells notice or, or the theory here is that the SEC gave them their stamp of approval two years ago uh, when they IPO'd. So this is very, very interesting. And we also saw, you know, Jared's in the audience. We also saw uh, SushiSwap recently had some some SEC notifications that came at them, which is interesting because they're, as far as I know, they're the first decentralized exchange uh, to get to get slapped in this way. And so I have a couple of videos and, and really, actually, let's let's do this. Let's let's look at the Coinbase response because it was it felt like a Chad move, like it was just it was just in there. So today we are disappointed to share that the SEC gave us a Wells notice regarding an unspecified portion of our listed digital assets. So basically their listing securities and our staking service Coinbase Earn, Coinbase Prime and Coinbase Wallet after a cursory investigation. So let's let's kick down just a little bit. So today's Wells notice does not provide a lot of information for us to respond to. The SEC staff told us they have uh, identified potential violations of security law but little more. We asked the SEC specifically to identify which assets on our platform they believe to be securities, and they declined to do so. Today's Wells notice also comes after Coinbase provided multiple proposals to the SEC about registration over the course of months, all of which the SEC ultimately refused to respond to. And just released, I mean, a couple hours ago, uh, this is Paul Graywall, and I want to play this. this this is I want to play this video here. So he is the chief legal officer at Coinbase and he's chatting with Laura Shin and he gave a a banger of a Senate testimony back on I think it was March 7th or March 8th explaining the lengths that Coinbase has gone to to try and be compliant in any way possible to broker dealer license putting together a suggested framework spending millions of dollars in this way to try and become compliant with the SEC. And they've basically gotten the cold shoulder the entire time. And so I want to just play this real quick before I kick it over to the team. Here we go. It's not just a fight for Coinbase. This is a fight for all of crypto. If responsible actors with serious AML and KYC programs publicly listed that are filing petitions for rulemaking and attempting to engage with the government can be treated in this fashion, nobody else is safe either. And, and I think it's important to understand that um, this is not just a shot at, at Coinbase. This is a shot at crypto as a whole. And so we will certainly do our part um, to defend against what we think is 
massive overreach on the part of the commission. Um, but it's not just a fight that Coinbase has, has to fight alone. This is really something that all of crypto, I think, needs to pay very careful attention to. And um, we're, we're going to make sure that all of these issues that we're dealing with with the SEC are explained and disclosed and described to the public as a whole to the best of our ability so that everybody can have a clear understanding of where things stand. So very, very interesting take here. And so on the one hand, you know, you've got people pontificating that perhaps Coinbase isn't the fight the SEC wants. Now, I don't know how true that is or not, um, but they do seem to be, you know, from what everyone could say, the good actors uh, in the industry. They're trying to do the right thing and getting the cold shoulder. Now, the alternate opinion that I, I actually heard this morning on a, on a different podcast Um Granted, these were not pro-crypto folks, so let me just preface that. Uh, but the alternate opinion was that Gensler has egg on his face because he was literally days away from giving FTX, uh, what I believe it's called a no action. No action letter, yeah. Letter, exactly. And this is his way of going in and kind of making things right in that way. Now, Balaji would say, you know, inflation is hitting. And the, the United States needs to do everything they can to prevent those dollars from flowing into crypto because it's the one thing they can't control. Mark Jeffrey, over to you, buddy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am of the opinion that Coinbase is, in fact, you know, one of the best actors in the space. They, I mean, they, they were on their knees begging the SEC to tell them what they did wrong, what they could do to correct it. Uh, and they spent millions of dollars proposing corrections, right? So... And the SEC refused to tell them what they were doing wrong. They refused to allow any of their remedies to, they refused to even comment on the proposed remedies, right? So I don't know how anyone could have been a better actor in this scenario if the SEC's purpose in life is to be a referee of fairness and to protect the market and to protect good actors uh, when, when they're attempting to comply with the rules of the marketplace. I, I never seen a more clear cut case than this one where Coinbase is, you know, has the moral high ground in, in spades and the SEC is sort of this Kafka esque malicious thing that is uh, th that is not providing the information required for the player to play the game in any sort of sane fashion. Right. It's like come in and register. OK, how do we do that? Oh, well, th we, we won't tell you. <laughs> right. And then when you don't register, you you get sued. So and we won't tell you why. And when we give you a Wells notice, which is uh, basically a notice which says we're going to sue you. Here's your chance to tell us why we're not. We shouldn't sue you. And mm -hmm. uh, and then but you can't do that unless you know why they're suing you. Right. You have, you have no you don't know what you're accused of. It's like a, a secret Soviet court where you're accused of stuff, but you can't you don't know what you're accused of and you have no right to confront your accuser. So that's the situation Coinbase is in. Well, I, I think that's a little bit hyperbolic because they will know once there's like an actual court case file, filed. There's no like, you don't have to, Wells Notice is just like regulatory. It's not the, um, it's not an actual court case. But I would also say that I think, Austin, you tweeted that um, something about like who who's like the best at lobbying Congress on all of this. And I would say that the the people best at lobbying have been coinbase so far i would also think i mean just you know generally speaking like coinbase is publicly traded they're a corporation all of their lobbying happens to align with what people in crypto may or may not want i guess depending everyone has their own opinion but 
um, at the end of the day, they're going to advocate for what's best for their company. And that happens to be, you know, crypto regulations that are friendly in the US because that's where they're headquartered and that's where they operate. So I think in this case, a lot of what Coinbase is going to be arguing for is going to align with what a lot of people in crypto want because, you know, Coinbase is crypto. So they're on like the side of crypto. But I don't necessarily know that when it comes down to it, they're going to necessarily have the little guy in mind when they're, you know, spending millions of dollars lobbying Congress. At the end of the day, they're looking out for themselves. And if it happens to align with what people want, then I think that that's going to be, you know, you're getting to take advantage of their lobbying efforts. But I still sort of view all big companies in the same way through the same lens, which is that at the end of the day, they they have their own best interest in mind. Um, and then that might align with what I want. And in those situations, it's it's great, but it's always sort of a, a grain of salt with what they're they're actually advocating for, because I don't actually know what's going on inside their you know private meetings. And they may very well be advocating for regulations that you know, maybe they, they want to see CDBC or they want other things. And if they can have their fingers in the pie, which makes sense because they're a corporation, they're in this to make money. So I think that they're probably the, the best in the best position to lobby for things that are good for crypto. And they're in this case, they are probably advocating for things that are, you know, generally friendly to crypto, but at the same time, I still, you know, grain of salt with what they're actually, um, what they're actually going to be discussing with people. So there's a twist here. And I, and I, as a developer in this industry, I'm interested to get your take, uh, double sharp. So Justin Sun, forget him. They should have gotten that yo-yo a long, long time ago, but, but sushi swap is a decentralized exchange, right? When it comes to centralized exchanges, they're clearly custodians, right? Clearly they have to be, um, but a DEX is not. And this is the first time that we've seen this type of action to my knowledge, right? Going after, after sushi swap. And so I'm interested, you know, in your opinion on what's going on there. Double sharp. Sorry. There did you say that I, I dropped off for a second. I couldn't hear you. That's okay. I black out all the time. Uh, so I was, uh, I was interested. So they, they, you know, they're going after a DEX now, a decentralized exchange, which is nothing more than a set of contracts, you know, which, which are routing right. tokens through a pool, right? They're, they're, there's no custodian here. I mean, unless you're considering a front end to access it being that. Like, like what's the deal here? Because this is different. This is different. We were all going, okay, it's all the centralized guys. That's cool. Don't touch our DeFi. But now they're touching our DeFi. Which I mean, sounded dirty when I said it. From a from a legal perspective, and you know, with the preface of I'm not not a lawyer, so I, and I do think this is more of a legal question than a technical question because technically, I think the differences are obvious. But from a legal perspective, just because I've written something and deployed it on a blockchain and it's immutable, there you know someone could argue that i'm still responsible for what that code does as the person who put it out there um you know i can't like mostly you know and i know this is like not the same thing but it, you can't like mostly put together a bomb and like leave it somewhere and be like ah well you know i didn't totally finish it and like it just i just like kind of barely did something there like that obviously wouldn't be okay and so i you know you could be like oh well it's you know different 
database, different storage, you can't change it, all this stuff, but you're still responsible for the code you deploy. So I, I'm guessing that that's sort of the argument that's being made, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't have no idea how strong of a case that would be or not, because like, I don't, it, it definitely gets tricky with some of this stuff though, because there are rules around cryptography and encryption and places that you're not like, I can't write, um, a new encryption algorithm and just send it to Iran or there's or North Korea, like I would get in trouble for doing that. So there are rules around where I can send code. Um, and I imagine that the, the thought process is that this applies to code that's being sent to a blockchain too. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a legal thing than a technical thing. From what I've read about the sushi swap thing that we don't really know what the charge is, right? It's just they've been subpoenaed, right? So, so it might not even have anything to do with Sushi Swap. It might be an asset on Sushi Swap that they want their deposition on. We just don't know. Totally. We're gonna have to have yeah. Jared on the right. show. Jared, if you're still watching, let's get you on the show, buddy. Let's 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 hash this out. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, and I agree with that. Like, I again, with all of these things, it's the parts that you don't know are. Yeah you know, the big curtain, because like, maybe it has to, it could be just something completely unrelated to all of this. But, you know, I think from the question that, that Austin was asking, I think it, it really just depends on the lens that you're viewing it through of whether or not I'm responsible for this code or not. Like if I've developed it and put it out there, someone could argue that I'm responsible for it. Someone else could argue that, you know, that I'm not, that I put this out, it's, you know, legal in some countries and, you know, whatever the, the argument might be, um, you know, there's technical differences and that may impact how it's viewed legally. But I think a lot of this stuff, as we've been talking about with lots of different topics, I think the biggest issue is that the, it's, it's just sort of an unknown, like this hasn't been tested. There isn't really a precedent for, you know, what level of responsibility people have. Um, and I think in the case of Tornado Cash, for example, I was sort of optimistic that at least we would get more information about, you know, why. And so far I haven't, you know, seen that much, which is a little disconcerting, I think, but I would be, I'm less concerned with people taking action against things as long as they're upfront about why and like what the rationale is, because that is sort of how like somebody thinks one thing, some other people think another thing, you sort through the differences and then that's how you end up coming up with a framework that people can work within. And that doesn't really work if you don't know what the, like, you know, if you, if you don't know where you're starting from, then it's hard to come to a middle ground, I guess. And so without even knowing what the problems are with some of these things, it's all just, you know, speculation. And I can understand how frustrating this is from Coinbase and some other people's perspective. If they're like, we're trying to do things the right way. Now you're saying we're not, but we don't even really know what we're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think that's, that's not the best way, in my opinion, to get to uh, something that we can all work within efficiently um, or the Unless most Unless they don't want to. So, Unless the point is not right. to get to anything they can work within. The point is just to cause, you know, to bulldoze, right? And so I want to kick it over to- That could totally be possible too. I want to kick it over to Savlaki real quick and then Nick. Thoughts? Uh, I know that you've, you know, worked in this industry for a while. What, where, where are you at with all this? I think Justin raised- um some very interesting points i think he clearly hasn't um and none of us should have forgotten what spf was doing when he was lobbying in congress sending mm -hmm. one 
one set of information out to us, but um, trying to achieve something else. But on the other hand, like Coinbase is right now, I'd imagine the one that has the most power to to fight a case like this and has the stomach to fight for it. But we shouldn't forget in terms of, you know, the discussions we're having a year, year and a half about centralized versus decentralized, where we want to sit on the scale and things like that. Then on the on the subpoena to Jared, I I think that's interesting, not so much that because sushi's a dex. Sushi is far more than a DEX, right? They do, they've got sushi, they've got the exchange, they've got Trident, they've got Bento Box. I think some of that is behind, I think Bento Box is behind the licensing. Sorry, Jared, if I got that wrong. Um, but what is interesting is that Sushi DAO actually has an incorporated legal entity out in Switzerland. But it sounds like from the limited information, we have is that Jared has been subpoenaed in his personal capacity as the head chef or equivalent of a CEO of Sushi. And that I find interesting. Why have they gone after the equivalent of a board member or director in their personal capacity and not after the organization itself? And perhaps that points to things like, you know, the they trying to intimidate the market through going through two US-based uh, uh, citizens or employees within the space, as opposed to opening an international case against a Swiss-based entity. Amazing, amazing. Nick, kicking over to you, buddy. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so in the interest of full disclosure, I, I, I own a fuck ton of Coinbase bonds um, maturing in 2028. So, um, I might be talking my book, but um, there's a reason I didn't buy the equity when I bought the bonds, when FTX was imploding. And one of the reasons was that Coinbase is such an easy target for the SEC because it is a listed company. It is the biggest, but it's the most high profile. Um, and unfortunately, because it's listed, you can bet against the equity. Okay. Um, and many people have bet against the equity. 20. 3% of the of the shares are short right now. 23% of the float. That's a lot, mm. right? So not only do you have the SEC gunning for someone, but you have folks that have a vested financial interest in trying to affect that outcome. Now, I, I Brian Armstrong and, and his chief legal counsel were on a... They, they had a space last night, my time mm -hmm. in Europe. Now, listen to it. And, you know, I got, I got kind of sad because... Um, you could you could feel you could hear the frustration and the despair in this guy's voice, right? I'm trying to do the right thing. I've been trying to do the right thing for a decade. Um, they won't budge. They won't, you know, give us anything. We've been through the S1 process. You know how hard it is to go public. It's really hard. The S1 process is a freaking. It, it, it's it's a nightmare. Now imagine trying to do that as one of the first crypto companies to go public. Mm. So these guys have been through the ringer and you could just hear it in his voice. Now, um, the problem with that is that when you run such a large organization and you have so many moving parts to it and you have very powerful people in the government and in the financial markets gunning for you, you're going to find something, right? 
there is a 0% chance the SEC doesn't have something on Coinbase, right? You can be a good actor. You can try to do the right thing. And by all accounts, that's what Brian and his team have tried to do. But these fuckers found something, okay? And they always are. So they're going to have to answer for whatever crime these guys have found. And it could be a rogue employee. It could be a number of different things. But this is not hot air. And that's why you saw the equity get annihilated today. Um, and even the bonds are back to where I bought them, you know, for the better part of six months ago. This is mm. not good for Coinbase. But it won't be a disaster. It'll be some little thing, some technicality or, 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 or a group of little things um, just to continue to, to hold the industry under, you know, uh, uh, under pressure. So it's disappointing. Um, and all the commentary in crypto is these guys are good actors. Yes, but that doesn't mean the SEC doesn't have a case and that's going to to, to pose problems for the industry at large. Um, I hope they fight. I hope they fight at tr truth and nail and they will. They've got the best lawyers in the business. But you cannot, if you have such an intense it's such intense scrutiny on you and you are a large organization that is operating internationally um, in an industry where the rules are not clearly defined, you're fighting with a hand tied behind your back. And and it's really, like, I was really sad listening to Brian talk the other day because um, I, I, I really think he's one of the smartest people going around. Um, but this isn't, you know, there, there, there's where there's smoke, there's fire. So my hope is that it's something they can settle out of and we can get on, you know, we can move on. I, I just hope it's not, it's not a, a, some, some kind of fatal blow that ends up, you know, removing a lot of the products and services that they're providing in the U.S. So I have a question for you because the, the overwhelming theme seems to be that the SEC is acting at the behest of the executive branch here and, you know, Congress for all their faults, seems to have one opinion that's split, you know, right down the middle. But we haven't really gotten, with the exception of library, uh, which isn't great precedent, we haven't really gotten to the courts and really drilled down here. What do you think the, the potential is? And of course, this isn't a quick thing, but what do you think the potential is of Coinbase, you know, actually taking this on and getting some possible, possibly favorable legislation in this regards? Look, Austin, I mean, you know, a, a court case like this is, is, is not putting the administration on trial. It's putting Coinbase on trial. The discussions mm. will be focused around the, 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 the indictments or whatever the SEC has found to bring this action upon them, right? It's not going to be some ideolog ideological debate about whether government overreach or, you know, or all these other things that we're talking about. It's going to be a very specific discussion about these four things that you guys fucked up on. Defend it, right? So I agree with you. If there was some kind of ideological discussion about government overreach um, and trying to decapitate an industry, sure, that's just not what happens in a courtroom, though, right? It's not like the movies where you get you get the good actor lawyer that gives the, 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 the inspiring closing argument and we're all like, yes. You know, you can't handle the truth. That shit doesn't happen in real life. Unfortunately. Oh, Nick, you're the man, dude. I love having you on this show so much. All right. So I think it's time to do a little giveaway. Uh, why don't we do the giveaway before we go to the next and final topic? 
Uh, let's throw this up on screen here, and we are going to pick two people. Now, if you, if you get picked, I need you to do me a favor, and Nick, keep an eye on this if you could. Drop your Twitter handle into the chat so that we know it's actually you, because what happens is people will start DMing trying to claim your stuff. All right, here we go. Drawing number one. The great Fapsby. You are drawing number one, sir. <laughs> and we are going to, good God, how do I get to draw again? There it is. All right, great Fapsby. And drawing number two. Cannot be us. I saw us pop by. So we're not going to do that. Yeah. You see, you see what happens? I called it, man. That's freaking ridiculous. All right, we're going to draw again. Lot, buy a lottery ticket. We can't, we can't win. It was a one in 40 shot. It ain't that bad. All right, let's try this again here. Mark Shenuda. There you go. Mark Shenuda. All right. So if you heard your name called, you are a winner. Congratulations. And do we have a comment? Yeah, I've I got a winner. I got a winner. Okay. Fire um, away, bud. Gentleman by the name of Bobby. And the comment was I, I actually cracked up. Um, Suvlaki looks like he only shoots three pointers. Let's go. Let's go. So I thought that true. was pretty funny. That's true. Um, so excellent, excellent. Congratulations to those three winners. Just um, uh, put your Twitter handles in the chat, and um, we'll get your accounts. Let's go. All right. So, just I think yesterday or the day before, we had Kraken announce that their ACH facilities were slowing down, and it it feels like you know in the midst of all of this SEC shit. And the choke point 2.0 shit, like they're closing down the on and off ramps, right? It feels like from a federal level, they're trying to stop the flow of money coming into crypto. And then just when it seems like, you know, it can't get any better, well, it can obviously get better, but we have, uh, we have Florida, Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz from Texas, both introducing bills to block CBDCs and protect the rights of Bitcoin holders in their states. And so we seem to be split, right? And, and obviously the states are independent of the federal government. And so they have a right to say that, you know, CBDCs cannot be used in their state. It was an encouraging thing to read. Uh, we also had the White House report come out recently, which, you know, they're saying, ah, cute little technology doesn't really mean anything, but we're going to dedicate like 80 fucking pages to it just to show you how cute and meaningless it actually is. Right. And so it, it, it definitely seems, you know, in the sense that we listen to, you know, Jerome say one thing and yell and say the other thing, it definitely seems like there's mixed messages happening here. And I'm interested to know what you guys feel about all this. Mark Jeffrey, over to you, sir. Well, to me, the white house report was the, the high order bit of all of that. Um, I, I read through it and, uh, and I read commentary on it. It was one of the most amazing, uh, things I've ever seen in the sense that it felt like I was reading Soviet propaganda, right? It was, they, they went to such great lengths to say that, um, you know, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin have no redeeming qualities at all. There wasn't even like an attempt to be to argue like, well, you know, it does kind of do these things well, but we feel like it's too big of a risk to do the financial system because of X. So therefore, we recommend against it. It is not a well-considered argument. It, it was just like there is no there are no redeeming qualities. It felt like the Soviet Union saying 
There are no bread lines. Do, do not look. <laughs> there are no bread lines. In fact, we have too much food. We don't not to know what to do with it. And meanwhile, there are bread lines snaking around every corner, right? And that that was honestly what I felt like reading it. And I don't think we we knew for sure that the Biden White House was against crypto. You know, we, we sort of thought maybe. You know, I mean, I, I think I suspected it, but I didn't know, right? And after this, this document crystallizes for sure they hate it. They want to kill it. There is no longer any question. And you know what it reminded me of? The language, even. It was almost as if, do you remember when they did the coordinated or coincidence Senate hearing and they had the the plant in there? The dude from Duke, right? Who was just sitting in there. Using oh, that guy. Almost That's right. Ident- <laughs> if Clay were here, he'd remember his name because he just, I think he goes yes. to bed at night angry over this guy. But he just used the exact same verbiage that, yeah. you know, it's only good for facilitating terrorism and money laundering and it has no intrinsic value whatsoever. In fact, it's a boon on society, all sorts of weird, weird shit that he said. So, but it was very, very similar to the language that was used. Sablaki, over to you, sir. I don't know if they had much of another choice. If we look at the timing of that report together with everything else that's going on, what happens to the current financial sector if the White House releases a report endorsing crypto to its full extent or endorsing the industry, right? How much more, I think, and I think it links back to what we spoke about earlier in the show, like for them to fight inflation, for them to come, because that's the big winner here, right? Runs on the bank go against their their plan, right? They they need to keep a message to keep to have faith in the current financial system, right? Because if that faith goes, the impact, the potential impact on the U.S. dollar falling apart will have you like we cannot even begin to quantify what that impact would be not only on americans but on the globe as a whole mm-hmm. right they need to protect that narrative and i think this timing and i think it's positioned like that to only look at one side of the argument is they need to put through that narrative they need to that we are at a time where everyone is probably at their highest in terms of not mistrusting the government, mistrusting the financial system, even more than when the GFC happened, right? And everyone hated bank, bankers then. But now everyone not only hates bankers, they hate the government, they hate the, the regulators, they hate Congress because they have now put them in this position or allowed this to happen just by failing to do their job diligently. So if they put out this report and say, well, look at this alternative that could potentially be something, I think the the, the general um, response would be, I want my money now and I want to buy crypto. And even though they might want that behind closed doors in the long term, I think right now it is dangerous for them in terms of trying to save um, the broader US dollar and protecting the country from a hyperinflationary cycle. Would you would you feel that it's safe to say that, you know, when you have countries like El Salvador, Portugal, Hong Kong, Singapore embracing cryptocurrency, that they're not in the position of issuing the world's reserve currency? And so they're not backed into a corner in a way that potentially the United States may be. 
and I don't think behind closed doors they do want crypto to thrive. I, I not a not a cell in my body believes that to be true. But are you saying that that due to the fact that the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, there was just no way in hell it, at this particular point in time they could have come out in anything but negative towards it? Uh, n not to the extent that there's no. I think the only reason why it's a no way in hell right now is because the economy is fragile, right? And because the dollar is fragile. If the dollar was in a bit of a stronger position, um, maybe it could have been more favorable. In terms of like other countries, smaller countries adopting crypto as, as US tender, I think in the long tail, I don't think that will be very much different than the established takes heavens you see globally currently, right? We're talking about Caymans, uh, Channel Islands, uh, British Virgin Islands. There are many clusters of tax havens that exist in the current financial world. I think over as things evolve, we will see many, many, let's call them crypto havens, where it will be more favorable to deal with crypto there, right? And I think that is a natural progression. And I think that is where we'll go if that means that one of these countries will then rise to become a market leader because they've created this environment that is conducive to this technology that motivates people to engage and interact and just generally improves people's lives. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, People, I mean, how did America become its the global power it is now? I mean, people emigrated from across Europe to go and build it is to build it up to what it is today. It doesn't mean that that can never happen again. Um, so yeah, I think I think the next few years was this this. I mean, traditional finance doesn't move that fast. Although this this the Q1 has been quite interesting. I think the, the next few years will be quite interesting, and I think it gives the opportunity for someone like El Salvador to to strengthen itself. I mean, the whole of the whole South American region is incredibly fragile. Like if we we talk about El Salvador, we talk about Argentina, but Brazil, uh, Uruguay. They are all at risk because they all suffer similar problems. And if this helps the region, like, good for them. Indeed. But Suvlaki, your argument, you know, uh, crypto includes stable coins, right? Uh, U.S. dollar-based stable coins. In fact, it needs U.S. dollar-based stable coins to thrive. And why? DeFi, why? Why, do, why does it need U.S. dollar stable coins to thrive? Crypto existed. DeFi existed before the introduction of stable coins. Stable coins, right, is a way to manage your risk so you don't have exposure to volatility. Right. So why That's does why. it... Yeah, but if you don't value the dollar, what's the point of having a dollar-backed stable coin? We always talk about moving to this place of having where one Bitcoin is equal to one Bitcoin. One Bitcoin doesn't equal... Yeah, I'm not X talking about that, the Bitcoin religion at this moment. I'm talking about your argument that the White House made that crypto is bad uh, because it hurts the dollar. My point is, is that they could have taken another approach where the dollar is good and stable coins are good, USD denominated stable coins are good, and the composability of DeFi is good. And we're going to somewhat embrace this new technology, which supports the dollar. They didn't do that. No, they didn't. But what did they do in the week after they shut down Signature? Right. They put down a press release that Bed they're now. going to, 
yes, right. What what does Fed now start? What does it sound like the start of CBDC? Okay, so so do you think CBDCs will be the Fed's well the government's official gateway into the digital asset space? And if your answer is yes or maybe, for me personally, that is the answer why that paper is positioned like that. Because now they're saying that crypto has no value. It is, for lack of better words, fucking useless, right? But they are going to come up with these CBDCs that unlocks all this potential value and is the savior of the digital asset space to motivate adoption. Right, it's it's all about the long game that they're playing from an a, an economic standpoint, and using the CBDCs then better feeds the narrative in terms of the strength of the dollar as opposed to a dollar-backed stablecoin. Because, I mean, we can talk about whether Tether is how legit it is, but certainly is only the really only the real. Excuse, I lost my words. Is the only one that really pushes that narrative that it's backed one for one with a substantial effort that is redeemable for one US dollar in the bank account. Okay. I love this show. I'm enjoying just watch. I don't even need to be the host. I'm just watching this show right now. Nick, over to you and then and then double sharp. I, I don't have anything to add. Um, you know, I I, I, I think that, that uh, yeah, I've got nothing new. 10-4, 10-4, double sharp. Any, any feelings, thoughts, concerns, discrepancies? <laughs> So, I mean, I, I was actually kind of curious about the economies of the countries that you mentioned, Hong Kong, Ecuador, uh, Portugal. If you combine all of their GDPs together, they are 0.0004% of the USA GDP. So I think that does, like that in itself indicates why they're more interested in doing creative things that might have a a bigger payoff for their economy because they have in some ways less to lose if um you know they're they're not dealing with with as many assets and so you know it's more advantageous for them to be involved with crypto or or to be supportive of it because that has a bigger potential impact on growing their economy and i think you know obviously it seems like there is concern around how crypto will impact the, the larger U.S. economy or other economies, right or wrong. Um, one thing that Suvlaki brought up that I've always sort of been curious about, with though, is like, I guess with CDBCs, it it seems like there's an assumption that that like someone will issue one and then that's the only crypto that you're allowed to use. I've always sort of looked at it like if if the you know if a government or somebody else issues their own token. I still don't necessarily know that everybody has to use it. I don't know that that would um, would invalidate all of the other DeFi protocols, all the other you know payment systems that are out there. It, if the government or some other entity got into um, handling currencies or handling payments through a crypto blockchain type set, setup, it still wouldn't be the same thing. It doesn't have the decentralization aspects. It doesn't have censorship resistance and all that other stuff. So I don't necessarily know that, you know, a government getting into um, issuing a token necessarily invalidates all the other stuff because because of the concern that there is around the CDBC. I think that it, that makes all the other stuff about crypto still valid. And I would I think people would still be interested in using 
you know, a decentralized token or something that has censorship, censorship resistance versus, you know, just defaulting to a CDBC and like, well, that's crypto. So I use that now. So, and I mean, I, you know, I could also see there being a case where there's a law that you have to do that. That would suck. But um, I still, without knowing exactly how that would be implemented, I don't know that a CDBC would invalidate the the rest of crypto. Bitcoin would still be around. Ethereum would still be around. Die, all that sort of stuff. All right. Everyone came unmuted while he was talking. So whoever wants to jump in, somebody's got something here. Uh, Mind if I go? Yeah, you're up, buddy. Uh, Justin, I, th- I, th- I think the points that you raise are, are valid. I just think about what you actually said on the show a few weeks ago in terms of it's not as binary as centralization versus decentralization. It exists on a scale and we need to decide where we sit on that scale for various topics. And if we think about like everyone that is on this panel and everyone watching the show understands what crypto is about, what the industry is about, and the potential that it offers. But when you go to, I guess, normies, right, and you listen to the narrative that they have been pushed in terms of Bitcoin, right, you tend to hear the negative things about, you know, financing terrorism, money laundering, and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Nick, Nick's thumb down sums it up. And I think, you know, when when you talk about access to DeFi and all those things, I agree with you. But I think for mass adoption, many won't care. Like many are going to see, well, there's a CBDC, right? This gives me access to the the thought, the, the narrative that they will spin will not be around decentralization and centralization. It will be a, around this electronic currency that settles payments instantly, that gives you all these sorts of benefits, and they can even create the illusion of custody, right? As you see the illusion of custody that exists on many centralized exchanges. And I think we'll fall somewhere in the middle of that. And until we see what like the government's actual plan is and how they plan to incorporate it, we won't know for sure. But one thing that governments throughout history have always done is fought for control and like CBDCs is the next step in that. I mean, oh my god! And and it's not about privacy and about access to your funds, right? The governments can freeze your bank accounts right now, even without CBDCs. Right. It's but it is the next layer, and it is. I think it will be packaged um, in a misleading way for those none the wiser, and that's why our role now as being early adopters as the industry, not us on the like everyone is to continue to educate people about like not only like the potential money you can make about <laughs> out of crypto, but about the importance of the industry and why cryptography in general is so important for our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. I got one, one yep, I agree with that. On 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 the, the points of like you just made about the the, the narrative that's been fed to everyone not in our space over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and it's why I think Balaji's bet is a bonehead move. Um, not because of the bet itself. Obviously, he doesn't need the money. But all you're going to hear when the bet fails, because Bitcoin isn't going to a million dollars in 90 days, um, is... This guy's your smartest and your sharpest guy 
this is your guy, right? Yeah, he's the guy. Well, he's a freaking idiot because he said it's going to a million dollars in 90 days and it hasn't moved in 90 days. So it just piles on to, to all this negative sentiment and all of this baggage um, for people that don't have the desire all the time to go in and understand exactly what biology is saying around hyperinflation, which is a very interesting discussion to have and an important discussion to have, but that's all going to get lost because he said it's going to, it's going to a million and it's not going to go to a million. Um, and that's why I think it's a bad move. Uh, but anyway, that's the only point that I wanted to make. I, I think Mark had had some commentary. Do you want to jump in, Mark? No, I actually, I actually wasn't about to jump in. Sorry. Um, oh, sorry, Mark. Please, please continue. All good. All good. We've I, hashed it out. I, I think we've hashed it out pretty good. Unless you, unless you want to. I, I do want to add there. one one thing that I forgot to mention. I, I also uh, just went to like the search engines and typed "crypto is" into a couple of them, and you know, outside of our bubble, to Nick's point, like the perception isn't great. The number one thing that comes up is crypto is a Ponzi scheme. Crypto is a scam. Crypto is dead. Crypto is like, there are a few of them that say like crypto is the future, things like that. But you know, the, the sentiment that's, that people have outside of crypto isn't necessarily always a positive one. And so I do think that is a good point, which is, uh, that you made Suvlaki, which is that letting, um, the narrative be dictated by somebody who wants to control the system. Isn't necessarily, uh, advantageous um for people who aren't are, aren't already in the space and, and understand what all of that means that then becomes the the reality of what crypto is if that's the only thing that, that someone's presented with so i do think that 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 is a risk also here 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 all right let's keep this moving so final final thing and, and i wanted to kick this to you double sharp because the, the the hackathon finished over on phantom and tell us what happened uh, give you a little time to shout out there. Oh, well, so the the first place prize was um, Paint Swap's game S4, which someone on this show helped uh, with some of the contracts. It was me. I like that. Um, okay. Which was, was pretty <laughs> fun. Like, I, I did not, I'm not going to take credit for um, a ton or, or very much of the work the Paint Swap team all did. Um, a lot of work in the last couple of months, like building it out. So I helped out with some of the the contracts a little bit, but overall they've um, they've done a really good job, uh, you know, building out the all the features, making it uh, look good, making the the play uh, fun. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. And it was I I've always sort of been um skeptical of hackathons i guess because i i'm like i don't know it seems like a lot of work not that many and then you know seeing it pop up on twitter that that it won and i got to help with some of it was pretty cool but um i did i also went through and looked at some of the other winners from from the hackathon um the so first prize was s4 um from paint swap and uh i think also sam wanted me to say it's the best game that's ever been made in the history of the world um not not necessarily a subjective statement um but the second price was an app <laughs> called resi which is a uh it's a it was also a pretty cool idea it's actually a hardware component crypto it's a recycling app so um i think the developers from ecuador they said and it's um a token that's based around recycling plastic bottles so when you put a bottle into the recycling machine it scans it and issues you a token 
Um, so I thought that was pretty cool, a way to sort of uh, incentivize people to recycle more and clean up plastic. Um, the third place app was an app called uh, Hazed, which is, it was a private, it's sort of a privacy um, app. It doesn't, um, it's not using ZK, it's not like Tornado Cash, but it's um, sort of follow, based on following a, a blog post from Vitalik about creating anonymous addresses that are linked to your wallet. So somebody can send you tokens or an NFT and have that be in an address that you can access, but it's not necessarily directly linked to um, to your wallet. So that's kind of cool. That's along the lines of some of the stuff that I was doing with NFT-based smart wallets. Um, there's some ways that you can um, set that up so you can uh, access specific addresses with um, that are based on your token ID, based on some other values that aren't necessarily um, easily correlated back to your wallet. So I actually might reach out to their team and see um, see if I can find out more about how it works in their setup and um, see if any of my ideas might be useful to them. But yeah, there was, uh, I think there were like 12 others that that won um, various prizes. There was a you know most creative, best trading game by um, an app called Journey was the most creative for doing Web3 onboarding. Um, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Furrow Com Combo was a trading app, so a, a DeFi aggregator app some um, you know lo-fi sort of arcade games from 8-bit gaming and then um, another magic the gathering card game based uh, game from super foundation was the the nft one but there were you know hundreds of of apps that were entered um, i mentioned on a previous episode a lot of them were were more interesting than um, i was expecting there to be based on like the timeline and, and time frame that the hackathon was um, running so pretty cool and you know congrats to everybody that won congrats to paint swap it was fun to work on congrats man dude that is that's absolutely wonderful man super happy for you guys congratulations to the paint swap team all right ladies and gentlemen if you've been watching this entire episode and you have not liked the video or if you like this content and you don't subscribe to the channel do me a favor hit that subscribe button hit the like button so we can help get this this content out to more people my name is austin with block bites joining me today mr mark jeffrey the the very rational suvlaki the slightly less rational Nick Dracon, but always great to listen to. And OX Double Sharp, and we are going to get the hell out of here. Mikey, take us home, brother. Thanks, everyone.